Excellence Expected, the inspirational business advice podcast. Well, hello there, you fine, fine podcast listener, and thank you so much for joining me as ever on Excellence Expected. I say it all the time, don't I, but I really, truly mean that. Thanks so much for spending 30 minutes of your hard-earned time with us. Now, here's a little tale for you. I remember starting my first business a while ago. I started the agency, and I remember very vividly looking at other people's success, looking over the fence, if you will, and wondering, how did those guys... How did those guys that are so close to me, in the same town, in the same industry, how have they landed such a fantastic contract, such a fantastic high-profile job with an organization that I aspire to work to? And it used to happen frequently. And as you go through your business journey, you realize how that does happen, and obviously things start landing for you too. But... We live in a world of startups. We live in a world of acceleration, in a world of incubation, where it seems the sky is the limit if you are a startup or a small business. You genuinely can do anything. You can achieve what you want to achieve. Now, the issue that leads from that, that we're going to define, challenge, and conquer today is how can you, as a startup or a small business, gain access and contracts to do work with some of the world's largest organizations. And helping me through that issue today and providing some fantastic, fantastic tips is the CEO of Tradable, Mr. Yannick Malling. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Good, good, good. So glad to hear that. Now, before we dive into this, I'm really curious about your background. I'm really curious about Tradable and what it is you guys do. So tell us all, what's your background and what is Tradable? So my background is uh, from a number of different places. Uh, Copenhagen, born and bred, started in banking uh, at the age of uh, 18, I think. Uh, so uh, pretty early on um, and since moved into into fintech um, firms in, in, in London, uh, ultimately founded Tradable three years ago. And with Tradable, we're really, really uh, passionate about removing the barriers to entry uh, to the financial or IT market, if you will. So traditionally, it's been very, very difficult for startups to do business with large organizations uh, in general. Um, if you kind of focus that in on the financial services sector, I believe that it's even more difficult in, in that sector, um, potentially more difficult there than it is uh, everywhere else. Um, and we've been passionate about like removing those barriers to entry really to increase the influx of innovation into the uh, financial services industry, specifically within uh, trading in the capital markets. Um, so with Tradable, uh, we actually have partnerships with some of the biggest banks and brokerages around the world. And what we do is we have a platform that allows uh, app developers, website developers to build in trading functionality um, into their own apps um, through one integration without having to go to each of these large banks and brokerages all across the world uh, separately. Um, we started out uh, three years ago, uh, like I said, and since I've worked with um, close to a, a thousand third-party developers um, and uh, dozens of uh, large banks and brokerages in places like the US, Japan, uh, the Middle East, Turkey, the UK, Europe. Um, 
Australia uh, and so forth. Wow. So you've seen a real cross section of companies and developers and access to different types of contracts and so on and so forth. That's quite a, an illustrative journey. And what are some of the barriers then for people? Why is it so difficult to do this? I think traditionally, if you look at how uh, banks and, and brokerages uh kind of operate uh it's just well i think traditionally it's been very very difficult as a small business like i said and, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about today to do business uh with large organizations in general um one of the main issues is what i call like uh, the 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 time gap uh so i guess the best analogy i can do is like uh, human years and dog years uh whereas like uh you know for for a startup 12 months is a lifetime right for a large company it just means uh, four quarterly earnings reports, um, and that's it. So if you look at roadmaps, product roadmaps in, in startups co compared to large organizations, they typically run for uh, maybe 12 months, right? And they uh, they do product releases uh, sometimes every week, whereas larger companies tend to uh, have product roadmaps that runs all, and strategies that kind of run up to five years. If I think back in business school, you know, that's kind of, what people told you to do, do a strategy, you can do a three to five year strategy. So I think obviously in the past, in the past decade, uh, with this accelerated uh, pace of innovation that we've seen, that's also changing for large companies. But that's something that startups already know kind of how to navigate in, um, in, in those. But that kind of difference in how you basically perceive time, you know, time is relative, right? So if you ask a startup, what's a long time for you? And if you ask a Fortune 500 CEO, what's a long time for you? You might not uh, always get the same answer. And I think that's um, that's one of the sort of very fundamental things that has uh, has a lot to do with it. And then I think in general, of course, uh, you know, big companies have so many things going on. They have so many activities and there's always this sort of um, ironic uh, thing that the more people you have in a company, the harder it actually is to get resources for anything, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so that's kind of why you know startups are able to move very quickly uh, because they can you know they can hire freelancers in without having to undergo heavy due diligence on them and kind of have everyone agree. It's a little easier to just you know you, they can be sitting on a Sunday evening and say let's do this Monday morning. They start doing it. Yeah, that, that's what I really love about the startup landscape is you can react so quickly and you, you get a real sense of, of pushing things out there and getting feedback and, you, you know, coming from both sides of that, I've seen the corporate world, I've been in the corporate world and I've been in startups and it's very different. I mean, I love it. It's so much fun being in a startup because it's just exciting all the time. And, you know, I, I think it's very different language as well. And I'm curious to know how you guys... How do you guys mediate that? Because you are effectively working with two sides of actually two different coins. You know, they are very, very different types of people. How do you guys mediate that? That's a very good question. I mean, I think ultimately at the core of our service is actually, uh, you know, the, one of the things that we, we undertake all the work with a lot of these banks and brokerages um, so that a lot of our app partners uh won't won't have to right so we can undergo you know six to six to eight months of a sales cycle up to 12 months of of, of legal and due diligence and, and and regulatory matters and then another six to eight months of integration work uh, but everyone we've done that every time we've done that every time we've gone through adding a brokerage to our ecosystem um, it basically means that we're able to connect with all the app providers and all the developers that we're working with everywhere 
Um, so how do we how do we mediate that? Well, I think it's it's kind of at the core actually uh, of our service. Obviously, we have a, 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 a sort of a two split organization. So we have people that deal on one side, we have different people that deal on the other side. Um, but ultimately, bridging sort of the gap between the finance and the tech. You know, a lot of people talk about the fintech industry right now being um, being very relevant, and and I think we see ourselves sitting in between the fin and the tech uh, actually. So, you know, managing those relationships is actually part of uh, part of the key things of of what we do. Let's just talk for a second about the financial industry's approach to tech, because. When you say the words financial and industry, one after the other, you do get the picture that it's kind of a gray kind of industry. You know, you think of tall buildings, you think of very corporate outlooks on things. You do think about a lot of people not necessarily moving too quickly towards a common goal. You know, it's, it's got this traditional feel to it. Yeah. And yeah. what is what's the current climate like in finance? What are the companies there trying to achieve? Why are they using this tech? What are they using it for? What what does that feel like at the minute? I mean, it, it's changed dramatically just over the past, uh, you know, three, four years, frankly. I remember when we came out, um, one of the biggest things were people saying, okay, you know, you have this hypothesis um, that the banks will actually work with you because a lot of the new startups that come out they go out and say, you know, we want to kill the banks, right? Or we want to kill the large organizations. We actually come out with a, a bit of a different approach where we say, well, we agree that that maybe they are a, a bit great, but we don't think that they have to, right? And and so, um, so if we can connect them with the right app developers, with the right app partners, and we actually think uh, that that there's certain stuff that they can still do very very well, potentially better than than what, how most startups can actually do it. So, so I think it is it is definitely changing. Um, if you kind of drill it down, I think people are looking at at two things inside banks. They're looking at how can we use technology internally to optimize our operations. So a lot of the startups that come up and say come out and say they want to disrupt banks. Uh, you know, at the core of their value proposition sits something that maybe they can do things more efficiently because they don't have the same overhead or the same processes because they've automated them, right? Whereas in some banks, they're still manual. So I think that's one thing banks are looking at, like how can we use technology to basically make our operation more efficient in a way that might allow us to uh, decrease co- uh, decrease the price or, or the, the consumer cost of our product, um, but also externally, you know, what startups are out there that that we can bundle within our offering uh, to make it more attractive, uh, to make it more modern, and and to provide a lot more value to our clients overall. And I think those are the two kind of things, you know, from a high level that that they're looking at. Uh, we deal most in uh, in the latter, but uh, nevertheless, I think the former is also quite interesting. You, you mentioned there about the attitude. You know, a lot of startups are, are bank killers, for want of a better phrase. Um, and the interesting point that, that that raised in my mind was you've you've got the job of transforming that. You you essentially have to say, well, listen, let's think about this a little differently. Do you face much resistance with that? Because that is almost a lot of the time, I would imagine, that's a startup's identity. You know, this is what we're going to do. And it's kind of a V for Vendetta style um, setup yeah. in, as a mindset. Yeah, How yeah. do you guys deal with that? Because that must be a real challenge. 
It, it can be. I mean, I think it, it comes down to discussing what actually lies at the core of saying that, right? So sometimes you can say that uh, just because it, it's a kind of, a, it's good for your branding, right? It's a very memorable thing to say. Um, if you think about it, oftentimes how people refer to companies, they don't necessarily refer to the companies as uh, kind of in, in a secondhand way as, as, as saying these are the guys and then they they phrase the mission that's on their website. So if you look at a company like uh, Slack, the, uh, the, you know, Slack is referred to, uh, the, the internal collaboration tool, um, you know, Slack is referred to as the company that's killing email, right? So oftentimes it's easier to be defined by what kind of you're doing in a very kind of itchy attitude uh, way. Uh, other than kind of saying this company is doing this and that and so forth. I think that's that's one part of it. Um, and I think the other part is, 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 is just that, you know, they feel that they have to kill someone out there in order to actually take part of the market share. Um, and that's inherently in that is that they feel that it, it's a zero-sum game, right? Like if you want to – I remember Steve Jobs had a really good quote that I'll never forget. And, and he says, what people – People think that, and this is back uh, before uh, Apple actually became more valuable than Microsoft, right? He said, uh, around the launch of the early iPod, he said, people think that for Apple to win, Microsoft has to lose. And he was saying that as he was sitting right next to Bill Gates, actually, in a panel discussion. And he says, that's not necessarily the case for us. That's certainly not how we think about it. You know, we look at our market share. If we can increase that by 1%, we're really happy with that, right? Uh, and inherently in that, now, Steve was a smart man in, in, in many ways, but I think inherently in that is also he didn't see himself kind of stealing customers from Microsoft, as you will, the switchers. He, he saw himself increasing kind of the pie, right, and, and, and kind of creating demand that people didn't really know that they wanted until he introduced it to them. So, so I think people that, that, that think that it's a zero-sum game, if we are to achieve a 20% market share in this market, we have to take it from someone uh you know then obviously then that's the kind of mentality you have then you can go out and say you know these these are the guys we're going after these are the guys we're going after um but the people that realize that it's not necessarily a, a, a serious game who can actually increase the size of the market uh that's where you can actually create a real uh, win-win and that opens the door for actually collaborating with existing market players while uh building a very successful business yourselves and 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 that's kind of more the um the style that we uh, believe in and that's kind of generally how we uh, how we measure our own success as well that's an excellent point about increasing the pie i really like that analogy because i think that is something that as you say steve jobs did that so well you know he allowed us to see that there were things that we didn't even know we needed and now we can't live without and i think that's testament yeah. to a lot of startups uh, sorry i think a lot of startups do that so well these days and just to take that startup angle then, when someone does have this kind of world-changing attitude, you know, many startups do have this, listen, I am going to do this. I am going to succeed at it. It's, it's not even a question of if, it's when this will succeed. And I yeah. love that about startups. What do those kind of people tend to do wrong? Or what are, what, what are some of the challenges that you face? And I'm talking really fundamental day-to-day -day stuff with them. So, you know, tactics, strategies that you guys work with them on to actually make them appealing to the big financial institutions. How do you guys work through that process? I think having that 
kind of confidence is is really really good um now that being said it also um sets certain expectations right so uh, like you say if we say this is going to happen with or without you um if you also say this is going to happen in a year with or without you well then the pressure is kind of on right because if you're still around from a year and it hasn't happened uh, then it's uh, then <laughs> then you kind of have a bit of a problem. So I think one of the tricks is it's 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 great to have a high level of confidence. I really I, I like that in people, and especially if they can argue for why it will happen, right? If they can argue for their vision. Um, but but there's also such a thing as being uh, kind of overly confident and 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 maybe kind of uh, pushing um, the bar sort of uh, a little bit too much because you almost like it's a, I see it a little bit of one of these barometers where you know if if you're confident you don't have to be overconfident because that that extra twenty percent will not get you there any faster or any quicker right so um, so I think that's that's kind of one thing I think the second thing is. Um, specifically when you have that attitude and you go out, uh, and try to make deals, like I say, it, it can be a, a good thing, but, but then you also need to execute on it afterwards. Right. And I think, again, it's, it's one of these ironic things where as a startup, you constantly lack resources, right? That's the one thing that like you have fewer resources than anyone else. So what's really important is that you focus. And I think that's still one of the things that's that's extremely difficult for many startups. They can go out, they can pitch a grand vision, this is going to happen in five years. But where do you start, right? You can agree with that vision, uh, but if you're sitting five people in a room, you know, more often than not, it's not just a possibility that you can sit there, work on it for five years and then launch it. You have to come out and you kind of have to start somewhere. And if you think about, I think it was... Uh, PayPal uh, that that um, with Peter Thiel and Elon Musk in the early days that said, okay, let's let's uh, start with convenience stores. Why convenience stores? Well, because then you start with something, and and then you kind of own and you dominate market, and then you show a track record in the market, and then you can kind of expand from there. And defining the market, your initial market, is one of the most difficult things to do. Um, and and that's and there's no silver bullet to it. I think, frankly, it's a lot of trial and error that you have to do really fast. Um, but that's one of the the challenges, and I think um, one of the sort of almost hidden reasons, or at least one of the reasons that people don't talk about very often, why startups actually, why many startups actually fail. Right? Oftentimes, you hear about the startup, and then okay, that's a great idea. I can totally see that happening. Three, four years from now, they're not around, and and you kind of think, well, why didn't happen? And oftentimes, it has to do with obviously the execution. Um, and more often than not, it's actually maybe they went for too big of a market. They want to show that they have any kind of traction. Maybe they went to for for too small of a market for it to be uh, it to be interesting. So, so it's that's one of the balances that you kind of have to figure out um, as a startup or a new venture. And just to talk about that startup, uh, you know, it, being a new venture, you you kind of go in eyes wide open, and you're really passionate about the product, but. Invariably, there are always going to be challenges that come with that. There's always going to be something that crops up that you have to deal with. And I just want to talk specifically now about when you start to work with these big organizations, when you start to work with uh, the size of organizations that we're talking about, uh, 
What kind of challenges for a startup does that bring, very specifically around the larger organizations? What are some of the things that you guys see startups struggling with when they, they begin working with those contracts? I think it's it's acknowledging the fact that this is not like having first of all this is not like having anything internal and and external meetings so you need to be very very good at kind of focusing in on things and coordinating things and getting those delivered because as a startup you when when you just work on your own product you can do trial and error uh, 20 times over and kind of adjust the product and you kind of have those that nimbleness, you don't necessarily have that when you venture into a large partnership. Again, due to this kind of time gap that I'm that that I'm talking about, you can't necessarily just refine the product every week. If you can only refine it um, every month, and you know that you need 20, 20 kind of trials in order to to get it, well, then in a startup fashion, you can get there in twenty weeks. But in, in a large profession, maybe you can only get there in uh, in 20 months, which is on obviously way too long of a time. So I think you need to acknowledge that upfront and kind of uh, and and plan around it. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, whether you can then execute that comes down to how you how have you entered into the partnership in the first place. You know, if you're doing something that they're sort of thinking about doing, but maybe are not really passionate about doing, then it's also really difficult to get it done. So you need to ensure that you kind of have that kind of commitment. Uh, and I think it actually starts with just getting getting their interest um, around what you do and, and kind of knowing why is this a match and why does this uh, make sense for them um, in the next in the next 12 weeks, in the next 12 months, and, and in the next uh, 10 years. Fantastic chat, fantastic, fantastic. I think we've sort of broken down a fair few barriers there in terms of what it takes to put a startup together with a really established, very, you know, certainly for the, the, the context of this chat, a very traditional style organization, or certainly one that feels like it from the outside. What I'd like to do now, Yannick, is actually just shift gear a little bit. Let's move into the excellent expected actionable takeaways section. So I know you've put some time into putting together three actionable tips for yeah. all of us there that, that may be struggling to get these kinds of contracts or relationships. So what is your first actionable tip, sir? My first tip is, you know, you need to do something new. Uh, and I touched on this almost a little bit, but you can't really get the attention from large organizations uh, by doing something that they think they can execute internally. Uh, so you need to do something that is new and kind of groundbreaking enough. Uh, oftentimes it actually comes down to how you kind of, how you frame that, you know, how do you position your product? Uh, and there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of stretch that in, in various ways. So Maybe they have a service, a service which is sort of similar, but that's targeting uh, a whole different segment altogether. Uh, so you need to ensure that you position your product in a way that they will never even kind of consider uh, actually doing that themselves. Uh, because then you will always, even if you then get the deal, you always think about, well, is this really working for them? Are they running it as some kind of experiment or what's actually going on? Very interesting. Very interesting. I can see the logic in that because the obvious the obvious solution typically is to just look internally for an organization of that size because it's it's all about, well, do we need to go through the entire red tape process of doing something external? So I think yeah. that's that's really, really interesting. And yeah. the second actionable tip, please, sir. So the second tip is I think you need to you need to so well the first one was you need to build something new. 
the second is one step deeper saying, you know, you need to build unique features into your model that, that large organizations aren't actually in a position to implement themselves. So that can either be looking at whatever regulatory exploits that you can do. It can either just be, you know, maybe if, 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 the large organization you're selling to uh, is not very dynamic and they update the product uh, once every year and you have a product that can be updated uh, every week with no problems. You need to find certain areas in it kind of, and that's something I think you need to kind of, you, you can almost build into your, into your entire business model, right? Where you can actually say, okay, no matter what happens, these things right here uh, is something that large organizations just would never really uh, be able to do. Uh, a lot of good examples include, um, so like from a tradable perspective, sometimes when we work uh, with publishers, it's difficult for them to introduce uh, trading uh, with one kind of bank or brokerage as a publisher if they have contracts with a lot of them, right? Because then all the other ones obviously get, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be very satisfied with having exclusivity with one. So then you can come in as like a neutral counterparty and we can say, okay, for us, you can access all of these different banks and brokers and you have a, counter, you have a relationship with someone who you remain neutral with. So oftentimes of figuring out stuff in the business model, stuff in the product development cycle, or even stuff in the value chain where you can kind of see that allows us to kind of position our model uniquely. Um, so, and, and it kind of helps you argue for the, for the tip number one as well. Uh, but it also helps you retain market share even after you've, um, you've gotten the partnerships in place. Fantastic. That's actually a really deep and insightful point as well of the, uh, the depth that you went to on that one. And the third and final actionable tip, please, sir, it's the last one. We'll wrap it up with a bang. So I think this is almost universal, but, uh, you need to move fast and deliver quickly. And I think, you know, that's again and again, it's almost like a cliche, right? Because that's when, whenever someone asks about uh, large organizations versus small, well, the smaller guys are more nimble, right? So you really need to play your strengths and that, you know, no matter how you go about it, that will be on the top of the strength list uh, every time. And there is a significant advantage in uh, moving fast, even if you are outnumbered uh by hundreds of people um you can actually potentially still get the same amount of work done or more uh in less time if you can figure out how to kind of move past and a lot of people talk about this um i think uh, dr peter diamantis talks about it in bold and i think that there's a lot of kind of startup gurus that that talk about this and there's a reason to that if you can really figure out how to move at that startup uh, speed um then it doesn't really matter how how, how outnumbered you are or how difficult it might seem at any point in time because you can try so many more things um, in, in less time and you can basically um, kind of out outrun them, so to speak. Fantastic, fantastic. Yannick, that has been such an insightful episode. I really love the idea of marrying something so fresh as a startup and, you know, taking this whole startup movement that, that's going on right now and embracing that and actually marrying it with something that people still do see has been very traditional at times. So thanks so much for doing that. And just before we stick a pin in it, where can people find you online, please, sir? So online, they can find me on Twitter, at Melling. Um, they can find me on uh, LinkedIn as well. Um, or they can go to, to tradable.com where they can write me. We try to remain as, as, as open as possible for all of the stakeholders that want to get in touch with us or either do something around our platform or build something on top of it um, or just reach out and 
kind of figure out what what the opportunities are in the capital market space in general. Super stuff. Check it out, guys, at Malling on Twitter. We'll get everything in the show notes as we always do, so don't worry too much about missing any links there. Yannick, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been a real pleasure. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Guys, for you listening out there, if you're in the gym, if you are driving and you feel in particularly inspired by this episode, do me the smallest of favours, please. Just leave us a small review over on iTunes. That would be fantastic. It helps spread the word. It helps us keep delivering this fantastic content to you. And as ever, thank you so, so much for choosing to spend this 30 minutes with us. And until next time, guys, don't forget, the more you expect from yourself, the more you will excel. Adios, guys. Bye-bye.